السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد uh, If you can't hear me our microphone is slightly further away today because we had some cable difficulties so you're going to have to move closer So inshallah today we begin with the tafsir of Surah Al-Ma'oon which is the 107th Surah of the Quran and in it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Ara'ayta alladhi yukathibu biddeen Fadhalika alladhi yadu'ul yateem Wala yahuddu ala ta'amil miskeen Fawailun lil musalleen الَّذِينَ هُمْ عَنْ صَلَاتِهِمْ سَاهُونَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ يُرَاءُونَ وَيَمْنَعُونَ الْمَاعُونَ Allah Azza wa Jal says, Have you considered the person who denies the judgment? It is he who pushes aside the orphan and does not urge others to feed the needy. So woe to those who pray but are heedless of their prayer. Those who are all show and forbid common kindnesses. This surah, which is uh, contains seven verses, is the 107th surah of the Quran, and it is known by a number of names. Surah Al Ma'oon is the most famous name by which it is known. Al Imam Al Qurtubi and others they use this as the name of the surah. Suffice to say that there are, when, as we've mentioned before, when it comes to the names of the surahs of the Quran, they fall into two broad categories. So as we said, the first category is where we have an authentic narration from the Prophet ﷺ that he mentioned the name of the surah, like Surah Al-Ikhlas, like Surah Falaq, Surah Nas, Surah Fatiha, a number of other surahs of the Quran, Baqarah, Ali Imran, they are mentioned in authentic hadith and narrations that these are the names of those surahs. So it's therefore then easy for us to say that that is the name of the surah. And then you have other surahs of the Quran in which there is no authentic narration from the Prophet ﷺ concerning a name for that surah. But what you then have is, you know, the, some, sometimes the companions, sometimes uh, some of the scholars of the tabi'een or others who gave these names surahs, uh, gave these surahs names rather. Um, so, and from them you take or we take the names, right? And you find these in the books of tafsir. So with Surah Al-Ma'oon, Surah Ma'oon is its most uh, famous name, the one that is most commonly known by today. And that's something which you find in some of the books of tafsir, as we said, like Al-Qurtubi. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, he calls it a surah allati yudhkaru fiha al-ma'oon. The surah in which the word al-ma'oon is mentioned, right? which is a very long-winded way of saying surah ma'oon. Right? The surah in which the word al-ma'oon is mentioned. And it's... You know, perhaps the reason why he said that is because he doesn't want to call it by a name that isn't a name given to it in a hadith or by the Prophet sallallahu wasallam. So he says it is a surah in which you have the word al-ma'un. From the names of this surah is ara'ayta, right, which is the first word. And this is reported by al-Hasan al-Basri, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar of the tabi'een, that he called it surah ara'ayta, surah ara'ayta, which is from the first word of the first verse. Similar to it is that it is called Ara'ayta Alladhi Yukadhib. Ara'ayta Alladhi Yukadhib. 
And this is mentioned that Al-Ata Al-Khurasani Rahimahullah Ata, the famous student of Ibn Abbas and many of the companions, the famous scholar of Tafsir, he called it by this name, Ara'ayta al-Ladhi Yukadhib. Is that the third name that we gave? Fourth name. The fifth name is Surah Al-Deen, right? Which is the final word of the first verse, Surah Al-Deen. And Deen in this context doesn't mean religion, but it means the Day of Judgment, right? Like Maliki Yawmiddin, right? That type of Deen, not religion, but Judgment Day, the Day of Recompense and so on. The, is the sixth name? Yeah. The sixth name is Surah Al-Takdeeb. Surah Al-Takdeeb, which is the uh, noun of Yukadhibu, right? And Yukadhib means to reject, to deny, and so on, right? That's another name that is given. And the seventh name that is given to the surah that is also found is that it is called Suratul Yatim. Suratul Yatim, which means, Yatim means orphan, right? Suratul Yatim, Yatim means orphan. Ata' rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, this surah is called Ara'ayta al-ladhi yukadhib, and it was revealed after Suratul Takathur. It was revealed after Suratul Takathur. So Surah Al-Takathur and Ma'un are not next to one another in the Quran, but they're fairly close together in terms of the ordering of the surahs. But he says in terms of revelation, Surah Al-Takathur came first and then Surah Al-Ma'un came afterwards. And as we know, the Quran isn't ordered in chronological order. Right? It's not an order that is done chronologically. So therefore, these surahs sometimes uh, can be close together or sometimes further apart. It is a Makki surah, meaning a pre-Hijra surah, in the opinion of the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir, and this is uh, stated by Ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Zubair, Abdullah ibn Zubair obviously being the famous companion, the son of Zubair ibn Al-Awwam, who is in turn the cousin of the Prophet wasallam. Abdullah ibn Zubair is also the son, his mother is Asma, bint Abi Bakr anha, So his mother is the daughter of Abu Bakr, his father, is the cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Abdullah ibn Zubair, is a famous companion in his own right. It's reported also on Ikrimah, and Al-Hasan al-Basri, and Qatada, and Ata'a, and from the scholars of Tafsir, Ibn Kathir, Al-Baghawi, Al-Suyuti, Ibn Atiyah, many of them, the vast majority of the scholars of Tafsir, they said that it is a Makki surah, meaning that it was revealed before the Hijrah. To the extent that Ibn Atiyah, rahimahullah ta'ala said, it is a Makki surah, and I don't know of any difference of opinion in this. Ibn Atiyah is the famous scholar from Andalus, as we've mentioned before, the famous scholar of tafsir from the muhaqqiqin of the tef, tef, uh, scholars of tafsir. Even though he says that it is a Makki surah, and I don't know of any difference of opinion regarding this, there is actually another view, and that is that this surah is a Madani surah, that it is revealed post-Hijrah. And it is said that Ibn Abbas عنهما, said this concerning the surah, and Allah knows best. But whoever is usually ascribed to this opinion is Qatada. Qatada from the scholars of Tafsir said that it is a Madani surah, and from the more contemporary scholars of Tafsir, in the books of Tafsir, you find that Tahir ibn Ashur in his Tafsir also chose this opinion. And the reason why there's a difference of opinion is <coughs> because of the verses in which Allah Azza wa Jal says, فَوَيْلٌ لِلْمُصَلِّينَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ عَنْ صَلَاتِهِمْ سَاهُونَ الَّذِينَ هُمْ يُرَاؤُونَ Woe to those who pray 
but are heedless in their prayer and they only pray or they only show off. These are verses when you look at them, who do they seem to be speaking about? The munafiqeen, right? The hypocrites. And generally, some of the scholars say, therefore, if it is a verse concerning the hypocrites, it would have been revealed post-Hijrah, right? In Medina, because the hypocrites had no presence in Mecca. In Mecca, because the Muslims were being tortured and persecuted, no one pretended to be a Muslim, right? There was no benefit in pretending to be a Muslim because it only led to torture and punishment. Whereas in Medina, where the Muslims had a state and they had power and they had authority, you have now an, a group that emerges that doesn't like Islam, doesn't want to be part of Islam, but they also don't want to be ostracized. And so they take on the appearance of being Muslims, whereas in reality, they were disbelievers. And they are called munafiqeen, and the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah goes into you know, a lot of detail concerning their traits and so on. From their traits, as we know in the Qur'an, as Allah Azza wa mentions in another part of the Qur'an, Indeed, the hypocrites seek to cheat and deceive Allah, but Allah will deceive them. When they stand for prayer, they stand in laziness. They only do it to show the people, to show off to the people, and they remember Allah very little. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the munafiqeen in these terms. So some of the scholars said that in Surah Al-Ma'un, the munafiqeen or these people, Allah Azza wa is speaking about a group of people who pray in a very similar way to another verse in which Allah Azza wa gives the same description of prayer, but then he says that it belongs to the munafiqeen. And because of this, some of the scholars said it is a Madani Surah. The majority of the scholars said no, it is a Makki Surah. You have a third opinion, which attempts to combine between the two, reconcile between the two, by saying that the first half of the surah is Makki, and the last half of the surah from that verse, فَوَيْلُوا musallin until the end, is Madani. Half of it was revealed before the Hijrah, half of it was revealed after the Hijrah, and this was the opinion of Az-Zamakhshari in his tafsir. He combined, he took both opinions, and he said, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense, let's bring them together, therefore half, before Hijrah, half after Hijrah. But the majority of the scholars of Tafsir dismissed this. And they said that, number one, Allah doesn't say that it's about the Munafiqeen. He doesn't name the Munafiqeen. Number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about a description that applies and is a warning to the Muslims. It's not just for the hypocrites. It applies to the Muslims as, it, as in, it is a warning for me and you, for us, that we shouldn't pray in that way. When we stand in prayer, we shouldn't be heedless. We shouldn't be neglectful. We shouldn't be people who our minds wonder or, and we will come on to exactly what the tafsir is. And the scholars, you know, some of them said that it means to stop praying, like not to perform the prayer. Others said it means to pray the, the prayer outside of its correct time and so on. And these are warnings for Muslims as well. On top of that, they said also that it is not only warnings about this, but warnings about riya, which is showing off. And that applies to the Muslims more so as much as it does to others. Because Allah, the Prophet wasallam, in a number of a hadith, and we'll come on to them inshallah when we get on to that verse, but in a number of a hadith, he told us that he was afraid of us committing shirk. One hadith, the Prophet wasallam, shall I not inform you, and we'll come on to that hadith later on, but shall I not inform you of something that I fear for you more than the trial of the Dajjal. And as we know, in another hadith, the Prophet told us that there won't be a trial that will come 
from the time of Adam السلام, until Yawm Al-Qiyamah that is greater than the trial of the Dajjal. And he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that not a single prophet came except that he warned his people against the Dajjal. But in this hadith, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is saying to his companions, Shall I not inform you of something that I am more fearful of for you than the Dajjal? I fear it more than the Dajjal coming. And they said, Yes, O Messenger of Allah, what is it? And he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it is a shirkul khafi, the hidden shirk, right? The minor shirk, which is showing off. That a person does something to show off and to impress others rather than doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet isn't speaking to the munafiqeen, he's not speaking to the hypocrites in this hadith, he's speaking to the Muslims, right? He's speaking to the companions, warning them of the dangers of this type of shirk. So the majority of the scholars of tafsir who said that it is a Makki surah, they said likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is warning us against these two things. Number one, of praying in that manner, praying in a way that's not beneficial, praying in a way that won't be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number two, he warns us against riya, showing off. Right, showing off and um, you know and uh, doing things for other than the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's like the brief introduction to this surah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in surah, uh, in verse number one rather of this surah, أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يُكَذِّبُ بِالدِّينَ أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يُكَذِّبُ بِالدِّينَ Do you not see or do you not know the one who rejects the day of judgment? Right, who rejects the recompense, the day of judgment. Al-Tahir ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins with a question. Ara'ayta, do you not see? And it is a question that is rhetorical. It is a question that is posed to show how weak and feeble the argument is of those people who deny the resurrection, who deny Yawm Al-Qiyamah who deny that we will stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and will be held to account for our day, for our actions. So he says Allah Azza wa begins it in that way to say that it makes no sense that a person would reject Yawmul Qiyamah, the next life. Does it make any sense because of the injustices that go on in the world and the oppression that goes on in the world and that there would be no balance and no justice in this dunya and that those people who are oppressed have no recourse for uh, for justice neither in this life or in any other life. So he said therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins with this. Does it make sense that a person would reject Yawm Al-Qiyamah? Al-Imam Al-Shawkani rahimahullah said Ara'ayta, do you not see? Means do you not know? Right? Don't you know? So it's not about physically seeing. It's like we often say right, don't you see something? It doesn't mean don't you actually see? It means don't you know? And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. Do you not see, meaning do you not know about those people who reject Yawm Al-Qiyamah? And Ad-Deen, the word Ad-Deen in this verse means Al-Hisab according to Ikrima Mujahid Muqatil. They said the accounting. Bid-Deen. Right? And we said this Deen is like in Surah Fatiha when Allah Azza wa Jal says, Maliki Yawmid-Deen. Right? It is the day of resurrection. So, Ikrima, Mujahid, Muqatil, Rahimahumullah, they said Ad-Deen refers to the accounting. And Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, he said that it refers to the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning the judgment that Allah azza wa will pass on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, when Allah azza wa will judge between people. 
So do you not see those people who reject Yom Al-Qiyamah? Al-Hassan Al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala said, this verse refers to the kafir, the disbeliever. Allah Azza wa Jal is speaking about the disbelievers and this is from the, uh, the attributes of the disbelievers. Ibn Kathir, Al-Imam Al-Baghawi, Al-Imam Al-Shawkani, Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahumullah, they said, do you not see the one who rejects Yawm Al-Din means Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And it means the counting. And it means Allah's judgment. And it means the fact that we will be either rewarded or punished for our deeds on that day. Right. So they basically brought all of those things together and they merged them together. Right. And this was also the opinion of Imam Al-Qurtubi. So Ibn Kathir, Al-Baghawi, Al-Shawkani, Al-Qurtubi, they said that it means all of this. Right? Because those opinions of the scholars of tafsir, as we said, are complementary. Right? The counting, the judgment of Allah Azza wa Jal, reward, punishment, all of those things are very similar and they complement one another. This verse, the scholars differed as to who it was referring to. So some of them said, and this is uh, uh, the verse, uh, or rather a statement that's attributed to Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, which is why some of the scholars said that he also considers this surah, there is a narration of him saying that this surah is a Madani surah, a post-Hijrah surah. And it's based upon this statement that Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah said, that this first verse was referring to someone from the munafiqeen. It's referring to someone from the munafiqeen. So if it's referring to someone from the munafiqeen, therefore Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu is saying that when was the verse revealed? Revealed post-hijrah, right? It's revealed in Medina. How else can it refer to someone from the munafiqeen if, it's refer, if, it's, if it was revealed in Mecca or in, in, in the pre-hijri era before the migration? then it wouldn't be referring to someone from the munafiqeen because there were no hypocrites in Mecca. So therefore, based upon that statement, they said that it is referring to someone from the munafiqeen. Therefore, Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma used to say that it is a Madani surah. However, there are a number of narrations in the books of tafsir that clearly state that Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma used to say that this surah was a Makki surah, that it was a pre-hijrah or a Makki surah. So that's the first opinion. And that's for those people who, or those scholars who said that the surah is a Madani surah. Those scholars who say that it is a Makki surah, they also differ as to who it was revealed concerning, right? Who is this verse referring to? Some of them said, or the first opinion is, that it is referring to a man by the name of Al-As ibn Wa'il al-Sahmi. Al-As ibn Wa'il al-Sahmi. Al-As ibn Wa'il is one of those people that we mentioned last week. When we were mentioning the verse in which Allah Azza wa Jal says, Inna shani'aka huwa al-abtar. Right? The one who rejects you and so on is the one who is cut off. Your enemy is the one who is cut off. Some of them said that it is Al-As ibn Wa'il. And he's one of those people, it is said, that used to say about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, as we mentioned last week, when he lost his sons, that Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is a man who is abtar, meaning he is cut off, meaning that he has no living male children. He's one of those people. Al-As ibn Wa'il is one of those people that some of the scholars of tafsir said he was the one who used to make those statements. In this surah, Surah Ma'un, Do you not see the one who rejects Yawm Al-Qiyamah? Some of the scholars of tafsir also said that it is Al-As ibn Wa'il. And Al-As ibn Wa'il al-Sahmi is a man who, I think he, his, his wife was the sister of Abu Jahl. Something like this. His wife was the sister of Abu Jahl. And Al-Sahmi, Banu Sahm, is one of the tribes or one of the clans of Quraysh. And Al-As ibn Wa'il was their chief. Right? He was their leader. Al-As ibn Wa'il 
therefore is a man who was an enemy of the Prophet ﷺ. He used to often make fun of the Prophet ﷺ. In fact, a number of these verses that speak about him ridiculing Islam or the Prophet ﷺ that we find in the Quran, you'll find that the scholars of tafsir in the Makki surahs will say, some of them will say that they refer to this man because he was a well-known person who used to mock and have open enmity and hatred towards Islam and the Prophet So for example, in the verse in Surah Maryam, which Allah says, الذي, right, which is a very similar opening to this surah, do you not see the one who rejects our signs and our verses and says that I will be given more wealth and more children? Right? Some of the scholars of Tafsir said it is regarding this man Al-As ibn Wa'il. And that's because I think there's a generation of, I think it's Khabbab ibn Al-Arat, was one of the early Muslims. And he was from the poor Muslims, from, I think he was one of the freed slaves. And before that, he was a slave. Khabbab ibn Al-Arat, he says that I used to work for Al-As ibn Wa'il. And I used to work for him, and I was employed by him. And when I had done a number, a number of jobs for him, and he, had, he owed me a wage, he owed me money, I went to collect my money from him. So he said to me that I'm not going to pay you until you disbelieve in Muhammad I won't give you, I won't pay you until you reject this religion. So Khabbab replied and he said that I won't reject this religion until I see you die and I see you be resurrected. Meaning that I'll never reject this religion, right? Until you die and you're resurrected, meaning until Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So Al-As replied and he said, and even if I die and I was to be rejected, I would have more wealth than you and I would still have more children and family than you. And that's why some of the scholars said that this verse was revealed. Do you not see the one who rejects our signs and verses and says that I will still have more wealth and more children? Right? So Al-As ibn Wa'il is like well known. And it's reported that when the Prophet would be walking in the streets of, of, of Mecca, he and Abu Jahl, especially if their brother-in-law is Al-As and Abu Jahl, they used to often harm the Prophet Al-As, it is said that he was traveling towards Taif and he was... Um, he was pricked by a thorn in his foot. He stepped on a thorn and he was hurt by the thorn in his foot and it inf became infected and that infestation led to his death. That infestation led to his death in a taif and Allah Azza wa knows best. So some of the scholars said that it is, uh, this verse was revealed concerning this man Al-As ibn Wa'il. And this was the, uh, this was the one, and, and they said the reason for that is because he would reject Yom Al-Qiyamah openly. So as we mentioned in that verse in Surah Maryam, and also he was known for his evil character, for his bad nature, right? for the way that he would treat people and the way that he would act. And this was the opinion that is attributed to Muhammad ibn Sa'ib al-Kalbi. Now, warning, I am going to go... Um, well, let me just answer this question first. Imad al-Din is asking... Why could the surah not have been revealed pre-hijrah but also be referring to the munafiqu that would come later? Just like we know that we are also part of the audience for many verses, even though it may be a secondary connection. Um, that's kind of possible in, in, in the sense that it's not going to be openly referring to the munafiqun, but referring to the attributes of the munafiqun, right? That's what we said. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, according to the majority of the scholars who say that it is a Makki surah, is warning us against certain attributes and characteristics that would later become 
defined and known as being from the traits and the characteristics of the munafiqeen. So, as I was saying, this is the opinion that is attributed to a man by the name of Muhammad ibn Sa'ib al-Kalbi. And, you know, I'm going to go off on a tangent now. Right? I'm going to go like left field. And the reason for that is because of this, of this particular, in fact, two names that we're going to come across now in this verse. Two people who are from, you know, the scholars of tafsir or from, you know, well-known personalities in the field of tafsir. And the approach that the scholars of tafsir who would come later on would have to both of these individuals. The first of them is, is this individual, Muhammad ibn Sa'ib al-Kalbi, who lived in Kufa. He died in the year 146 Hijri. And he was well known to have Shia beliefs and so on. Right? And he's someone who the majority of the scholars of Hadith have rejected. He said that he's a rejected narrator. They don't accept his Hadith and so on. Abu Hatim al-Razi, who's the famous scholar of Hadith, he said, Ajma'u ala tarki Hadith. The scholars unanimously said that his Hadith are not accepted. And the reason why I'm bringing this point because it is an interesting nuance and there is an interesting difference between hadith and its sciences and its narrators and, and tafsir and its scholars and its narrators. This is a man who is not accepted by the scholars of hadith. His narrations are not accepted. They say that he's an abandoned narrator, right? Which is like you know, one of the most weakest narrators that you can have is someone that all of the scholars of hadith have agreed that is to be abandoned, that is not someone that you accept his hadith from. However, you will find, as you know, we can see clearly now, that in the books of tafsir, that is not the case. His narrations are mentioned, and they're mentioned in many books of tafsir, right? And normally, when it com or usually when it comes to his statements in tafsir, you have three different approaches to him, to this individual. Right? The first of them is those scholars who said that we don't take any of his statements in hadith, in tafsir, in anything, we reject all of them. And this was the, you know, the position of, of the famous scholars of hadith, actually, who you know, also have um, something to do with tafsir, like Waqi' ibn Jarrah, Ahmad, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, Yahya ibn, ibn Ma'in, Ibrahim al-Harbi, Ibn Abi Hatim, and others. They said that we don't accept any of them. Waqi' ibn Jarrah was asked concerning tafsir, and he said, or rather, Waqi' used to teach tafsir, and people would say, and he would say to the people, take my tafsir, because one thing that I will never do is narrate you from this man, Muhammad ibn Sa'ib al-Kalbi. Right? Meaning that I will never ever narrate from him. And Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala was asked concerning the tafsir of this man, and he said, kathib, it is all lies. And he was asked, can we read it? And he said, no. Right? And Yahya ibn Ma'in said that in Iraq, there is a book that should be buried and never read again. And that is the tafsir of al-Kalbi. So that's one approach. Completely reject his tafsir, don't accept his narrations, don't look at his opinions. The second approach is that you critique his narrations. You analyze them. And that which is supported by other scholars of tafsir or which has a good meaning, the meaning of itself is good and it's in, in, in accordance to the meaning of the verse and, and what we know from the scholars of tafsir and from the companions that he meets with that, we take. And what doesn't, we reject. And this was what you'll find from amongst the famous scholars of tafsir, like Imam al-Tabari, Sufyan al-Thawri, Abdul Razak, Sa'id ibn Mansur, Ibn al-Munzir, and others. And Imam al-Tabari being you know, the most famous name probably there from amongst that group. This is their approach. They would take from him and they would leave others, other things from him. What would they leave? They would leave when he narrates from others. So if 
Muhammad ibn Sayyib al-Kalbi says that I heard so-and-so say from so-and-so from Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhumah that he said concerning Allah's statement such and such a thing, they wouldn't narrate that for the, for the most part. Right? Imam al-Tabri, I think only on like a handful of occasions does he use such narrations in, in, his, uh, in, his, in his tafsir. What do they narrate? They narrate his own opinions, his own statements. So if Muhammad al-Sayyib said, like he said here, that this verse was revealed concerning Al-Wa'as ibn Wa'i, not something which he attributes to anyone else, because when he becomes in a chain of narration to a companion, it is problematic, right? The scholars don't accept his narrations from other people. But his own statements, if they are in line with generally what the scholars of tafsir are saying, they will accept it. So Ibn al-Jari, al-Tabari, others, they narrate from him. So here, for example, in this verse, he says that this verse was revealed concerning Al-As ibn Wa'id. Others said Abu Jahl. Others said so-and-so. So his opinion, even though he's the only one to mention that name, or one of the few people to mention that particular name, but it is in accordance to what the scholars are saying, that this verse was revealed concerning a single particular person or an individual, and he's given one of the names, and we know from generally from the seerah and from the sunnah, that that man, Al-As ibn Wa'il, was an ardent enemy of Islam. So it is in the realms of possibility that this is the man that is being referred to. So they will accept narrations from him and statements like this from him, but they won't accept statements that are attributed to others. When he says that I heard from so-and-so that Ibn Abbas said, or this companion said, or so on. When he narrates something, because when he says Ibn Abbas says something, it is different to when you say Muhammad Ibn Sa'ib says something. When you go back to someone like Ibn Abbas, or you know, another companion, Aisha, or any of those companions, it gives it weight, right? It's something which any Muslim that hears Ibn Abbas said something, radiallahu anhuma, you know, okay, that's serious. But if you know that it's a statement of Muhammad ibn Sa'ib himself, you have you know, that, that nuanced approach in dealing with this. The third approach to his tafsir is you'll find that there are some scholars who just take all of his tafsir, what he narrates from others, what he says himself, what he attributes to companions, and they take everything. And perhaps the most famous example of that is Tafsir al-Tha'labi. Tafsir al-Tha'labi is also from what they call the Tafsir al-Ma'thura. It is a tafsir which gives chains of narration going back to companions and so on and their opinions of tafsir. He will often narrate from Muhammad ibn Sa'ib, who narrates from his teacher, who narrates from Ibn Abbas. Right? Even though many of the scholars of tafsir don't consider that to be a correct chain of narration. So that's one person, right? that's the first individual. The second one that we'll also come across now, but we'll, we'll just speak about him very briefly, is Muqatil ibn Sulaiman. Muqatil is a name that we've heard right, many times. Muqatil is someone who, you know, I think we've mentioned throughout our, our uh, lessons of tafsir, as one of the scholars of tafsir, he passed away in the year 150 Hijri. Right? Imam al-Dhahabi, I think, said, rahimahullah, concerning him that he was born in the same year as Imam Abu Hanifa, and he died in the same year as Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala. Muqatil ibn Sulaiman was from the students of Mujahid and al-Dahhaq and others. And some scholars like Sufyan ibn Uyayna and others studied under him. Muqatil ibn Sulaiman is also a scholar who is not accepted in terms of hadith. Al-Bukhari, Yahya ibn Ma'in, the famous scholars of hadith, they don't accept his narrations in hadith. Is not considered an authentic, reliable narrator of hadith. They reject him as a narrator. However, in tafsir, he is widely accepted, as opposed to Muhammad ibn Sa'ib. Muhammad ibn Sa'ib, 
as we said, is rejected in hadith and, you know, like, he's kind of rejected in tafsir unless it is his own statement and it's in accordance to, you know, what the other scholars are saying and so on and so forth. With Muqatil, he's considered himself to be one of the imams of tafsir, right? To the extent that Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala, said, the people are reliant upon Muqatil in tafsir. And he used to say, whoever wants to learn tafsir, then let him read the tafsir of Muqatil. And there are other scholars who also praise his tafsir. He is well known as a scholar of tafsir. And what that means is, and the difference between the two, or the difference between the two approaches of hadith scholars and tafsir scholars, and I mention this here because it's something which, you know, you know when, when you study tafsir and you go to this level of depth, you come across a name that if you were to read in a hadith book, the hadith would be rejected and be weak. But in tafsir, he's considered to be an imam of tafsir, right? Someone... And he actually has a book of tafsir. It's one of the earliest books of tafsir that we have today is tafsir of Muqatil ibn Sulaiman. And it is a very nice tafsir. It is a, a nice tafsir and, and something which the scholars go back to Imam al-Tabri and all of the famous scholars of tafsir, they go back to his tafsir, tafsir Muqatil ibn Sulaiman. Al-Imam al-Dhahibi rahimahullah ta'ala said that he is not accepted in hadith. But when it comes to tafsir, he is an ocean. He's an ocean of tafsir. Ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala said something similar. He said that he's not accepted in hadith, we don't consider him, he's, he's weak, but he is well known and his opinions are respected and his statements are respected in the science of tafsir. Right? So when Muhammad ibn Sa'ib says something, it's met with you know, trepidation. It's met with, okay, maybe, maybe not. But when Muqatil says something, it's something which is, which is accepted. And so just because he's someone who's rejected in hadith, Muqatil himself is giving his own opinions. Right? He's saying, this is what the meaning of the verse is. This is what it is. This is what it refers to. This is who it's referring to and so on. And that's something which is respected in the science of tafsir. So even the scholars like Ibn Taymiyyah, Imam al-Dhahabi, and other famous scholars of hadith and, and the famous scholars of Islam, who didn't accept his hadith narrations, agree that he is an ocean when it comes to the science of tafsir. So that's just like, a, you know, as I said, a, a slight tangent. Um, but I think that it's important to know those kinds of differences. So the first opinion, as we said, that this verse, verse number one, Do you not see the one who rejects يوم القيامة? Do you not see the one who rejects يوم القيامة? That refers to this individual, Al-As ibn Wa'il al-Sahmi. And we said that this was attributed, or this statement was attributed to Muhammad ibn al-Sa'ib al-Kalbi. Second opinion is that it refers to Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira. Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira. And this is the opinion of Muqatil. This is the opinion of Muqatil. That it refers to Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira. The third opinion is that it refers to Abu Jahl. It refers to Abu Jahl. And this narration says that Abu Jahl used to be the guardian of an orphan. So he came, the orphan came to him one day naked because he didn't have enough money to buy clothing for himself. So he came naked looking for help from Abu Jahl. And Abu Jahl is his guardian, meaning that he's supposed to provide for him and look after him. And instead of what Abu Jahl did is he pushed him away. He pushed him away. Right? And so they said that these verses are referring to Abu Jahl. The fourth opinion is that it refers to a man by the name of Amr ibn Wa'id al-Makhzumi. Amr. Ibn Aid al Makhzumi. And this was the opinion of Al Dahak. And the fifth opinion is that it's referring to 
Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan. And that's because they say that in the early Meccan days, he slaughtered a camel or a number of camels. And the orphans came to ask for some food. But instead, he beat them away with his stick. Right? He beat them away with his stick. And this is obviously joining between verse 1 and verse 2. right? Because verse 2 will say, right? He is the one who pushes away the orphan. So they're combining between the two. And this opinion that it refers to Abu Sufyan was the opinion of Abdul Malik ibn Juraj. Abdul Malik ibn Juraj. Abdul Malik ibn Juraj is a, uh, a famous scholar who um, studied under a number of the companions. And it's said that he, you know, he became a famous scholar of hadith and fiqh and tafsir and so on. And he lived and settled in Mecca. And he said that he was one of the first, um, the first scholars to write. Right? He was one of the first scholars to write. And he studied with, from the main students of Ata' rahimahullah, he spent 18 years studying with Ata' rahimahullah ta'ala. So he said that it is Abu Sufyan. Right? So we have six opinions. The first opinion is attributed to Ibn Abbas, that it's a man from the Munafiqeen. Right? And that's where you get that opinion that it is a Madani Surah. The other five opinions from the Makki, like those who say that it is a Makki Surah, we have Al-As ibn Wa'il, Al-Walid ibn Mughira, Abu Jahl, A'idh ibn uh, Amr ibn A'idh al-Makhzumi, and Abu Sufyan. Right? Those are the opinions that we have, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. If, if it is referring to one specific individual, or if it is a general verse, and they are included within that general verse. Sheikh Shanqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, Muhammad al-Amin, Shanqiti, in his book, Adwa'u al-Bayan, his tafsir, he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he speaks about people who reject Yawm al-Qiyamah and then don't do good to the orphan and don't do good to the poor by not feeding the poor. Whereas in another verse, in Surah Al-Insan, Allah Azza wa Jal combines between the believers, those who have Iman, and those who look after the orphans and those who feed the poor. And he says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَيُطْعِمُونَ الطَّعَامَ عَلَىٰ حُبِّهِ مِسْكِينًا وَيَتِيمًا وَأَسِيرًا And those who feed food despite their love for it, to the miskeen, who is the poor, yatim, who is the orphan, and the asir, who is the captive, right, the prisoner of war. So in this verse, Allah is speaking about the believers and he describes them as people of iman who feed from the food that they love. Right? Some of the scholars said that that means that they feed from the food that they love, meaning that they have a love for food, but despite that, they will still give it to the poor and the orphans and so on. Others of the scholars said, no, it means that they give from the food that they love, meaning that they give them from the best of food that they have, that they enjoy, that they love for themselves. They feed it to those people as well. Right? So they feed the, the poor, the orphan, and the asir. And then Allah Azza wa says, إِنَّمَا نُطْعِمُكُمْ لِوَجْهِ اللَّهِ لَا نُرِيدُ مِنْكُمْ جَزَاءً وَلَا شُكُورًا إِنَّا نَخَافُ مِنْ رَبِّنَا يَوْمًا عَبُوسًا Indeed, we feed you for the face of Allah, for the sake of Allah. We don't want from you neither reward nor any gratitude. But rather, we fear from our Lord the day in which, which things will be extremely difficult. Right? So the reason why they feed is because of their iman and their fear of Allah Azza wa Jal. And they feed the poor and the, and the orphan and so on. Whereas in Surah Ma'un, in the one that we're on, Allah Azza wa Jal is speaking about the people who have the opposite. They don't have... Iman in Allah Azza wa Jal, meaning they don't believe in Yawm Al-Qiyamah. 
And some of the scholars ask the question, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention this? Why does Allah azza wa jal begin with mentioning people who reject Yawm al-Qiyamah and then he speaks about this issue of not feeding the poor and the orphans and so on? How are the two related? Because Iman in Yawm al-Qiyamah is an issue of aqeedah, of belief, of creed. Not feeding the poor and the needy is an issue of character, right? It's an issue of being good and showing kindness and, and character. And the scholars said because Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to those people who don't have Iman, don't even have the basis of Iman, they don't have any fear that they will stand before Allah, be held to account, be asked about their actions. If a person doesn't have that Iman or that fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then what is it that is there to compel them to do good? What is it, what's there to compel them to do good and to help others? Whereas the believer knows that even though they may not get back any material return, you don't get any reward, you don't get any money, you don't get any accolades, you don't get any you know, medals necessarily, nothing to honor you. But that reward will be saved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, we will have that reward in full by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why Allah azza wa jal, or some of the scholars of tafsir said, that human nature is that we only do things when we can see the reward. Right? So if you know that you're going to get something at the end of today or tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, then that in itself is an incentive. Right? It's something which incentivizes you to do that. Right? You work because you're going to get paid. You help someone because you expect them to repay that favor. You do some good to someone because you expect them to say nice things about you. But when it comes to especially these categories of people, the orphans, don't have any ability to help you. The poor have no money to give you. To help them consistently on a, on, on, on a regular basis is a sign of Iman. Someone who fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, someone who believes in Yawm al-Qiyamah, someone who fears the standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And some of the scholars I find also said that Allah azza wa mentions these actions of looking after the orphan, feeding the poor, feeding the needy, because they said that this is something which even before religion is a humanitarian issue. So even non-Muslims look after the poor and they feed the poor and they look after the orphans and they feed the orphans and they, and they do that because it is a humanitarian issue. So when the Quraysh or people from the Quraysh used to even reject this, it shows how evil they had become. Neither did they have their belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the fear of Allah azza wa jal, but even basic human goodness to look after those people who are the most vulnerable in society, it's something which they wouldn't do. And we know from, uh, you know, generally from the seerah, that the Quraysh amongst them were people who were extremely generous and kind and honorable and hospitable. But also from amongst the Quraysh were people who were known for their evil character. And they weren't people who, were, who had any type of generosity within them, or any type of kindness. And one of the pacts that took place in the early years before the Prophet ﷺ was given prophethood is something which is called Hilful Fudul, right? The Pact of Fudul, which is a pact that was made because a tradesman or a, a, or a trader came from outside of Mecca into the city of Mecca, a poor man who had things that he wanted to trade and he sold them to a man from Mecca, from one of the Quraysh. And the man from Quraysh refused to pay him. So he was going around, this man who's an outsider, doesn't have any family, doesn't have any support, there's no court system, there's no judge, no one to go to. He would go to the different leaders of Quraysh, appealing to them for help. But because the man who had taken his wealth unjustly was also from the noblemen of Quraysh and from the chieftains of Quraysh, none of them were able to say anything to him. None of them wanted to speak up. No one wanted to go to bat for this 
poor outsider and you know suffer a broken relationship with someone who is a nobleman and a chief of Quraysh until after this situation continued and persisted for a number of days and weeks people started to feel ashamed they started to feel ashamed that this could happen in the city of Mecca and Quraysh who are meant to be the custodians of the Kaaba and Zamzam and all of these things that the Arabs used to come and honor that this is how they should behave so they all came and they gathered in the house of one of the chiefs and the Prophet said that I was there as well I was present when they made that pact that if a person comes and is oppressed by anyone from Quraysh, all of Quraysh must stand against the oppressor. They made that pact. One person is oppressed by Quraysh, all of the Quraysh must stand against the oppressor, even if he is from Quraysh. And the Prophet is recounting or recalling this incident many years later, that if I was to be called to something similar again, I would go and do it again. That if they told me to come and do this again, I would do it because he stood up for justice and fairness and upholding the rights of others. And that's why in the, in the boycott that the Prophet ﷺ also suffered right, for a number of, of months, for a good long while, when they were boycotted, the, the, the companions and the Muslims and the family of the Prophet ﷺ, Banu Hashim and Banu Muttalib, were put into what is called the Shi'ib of Abu Talib, that valley on the outskirts of Mecca, and they were boycotted socially and economically and, and politically and so on. That no one was allowed to send them food and no one was allowed to marry from them and no one was allowed to communicate with the Muslims and especially with the family of the Prophet ﷺ, his clan and his tribe. They were all boycotted for a number of months, including Abu Talib and the non-Muslims who were from Banu Hashim and Banu Muttalib. The only reason or one of the reasons why that pact or that, that boycott came undone was because some of the Quraysh felt that it was evil, that it was bad, that it's not befitting for the Arabs to behave in that way, especially with their own blood relatives, their own family, their own relatives, their own kith and kin, that they would behave that with them in this way. So you find amongst Quraysh, people of honor, people like Abu Talib, people who perhaps even though they didn't accept Islam, they were known for their character and they were known for their, their morals. And then you have people, other people like Al-As ibn Wa'il and some of these other names that we've mentioned that were also Meccans, also from Quraysh, but they were evil people, and they were people of evil character and bad character. Some of the scholars of Tafsir said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says, He will say in the next two verses, describing those people who reject Yawm Al-Qiyamah, also from their descriptions, is that they push away the orphan, and they don't encourage the feeding of the poor. Some of them said that the first one, and both of them, Shaykh Nathaymeen rahimahullah said, both of them are examples of mercy. Shaykh Nathaymeen rahimahullah said, both of them are examples of mercy. To look after the orphan. You know, if, you're going to, if, you're going, if your heart's going to be moved by any child, it's going to be moved by an orphan. Someone who's lost their parents, doesn't have anyone to look after them, doesn't have anyone to, to help bring them up, doesn't have any parent, parental figures within their life. That's, that's what your heart's going to find mercy towards. And... Also, the, the poor and the needy who are starving and suffering, right? and people who don't have food, people who can't live day by day, people who don't find access to clean water, and so on. So, Rahimahullah said, Allah uses these two because they are both examples of basic human mercy. And then other scholars said, Allah says, those who push away the orphan because that is an example of an extremely uh, horrible action to push away the orphan, and even the wording used, to push away 
the orphan. Means not just to reject, not just to say no, not just to turn away, but to physically push away. Right? And that's why we said in some of those uh, narrations that they said concerning Abu Jahl that he pushed away the orphan. Right? And Abu Sufyan, that when the orphans came asking for food, he beat them with a stick. Not just to say no or to refuse, but to actually push them away in that severe way, in that, in that severe manner. And then not encouraging others to feed the poor, some of the scholars said, and that is an, 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 uh, an example of not only a person themselves not doing something which is good, but then telling others not to do so as well. And so again, the wording in Arabic is very interesting. That Allah Azza wa says in the Quran, He's the one who pushes away the orphan. So it's not even not looking after the orphan, it is the most extreme example of being bad or evil, showing evil character to an orphan. And the one who doesn't encourage the feeding of the poor. And Allah Azza wa doesn't say the one who doesn't feed the poor, the one who doesn't even encourage, meaning he doesn't do it, and he doesn't like others to do it. He won't do it himself, and he won't encourage others to do it either. So it is, an, again, another extreme example of what this person will go towards in terms of the way that they are and in terms of the actions that they have. فَذَٰلِكَ الَّذِي يَدْعُوا الْيَتِيمِ So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says in verse number two, فَذَٰلِكَ الَّذِي يَدْعُوا الْيَتِيمِ He is the one who pushes away the orphan. Right, the one who pushes away the orphan. At-Tahir ibn Ashur, rahimahullah in his tafsir, he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after mentioning verse number one, أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يُكَذِّبُ بِالدِّينِ Do you not see the one who rejects يَوْمُ الْقِيَامَةِ? He doesn't say immediately the one who pushes away the orphan. يَدْعُوا right? yatim. But rather he begins the verse by saying فَذَلِكْ That is the one. الَّذِي That is the one who. And it's an introduction to this person. So he says that this is something which Allah Azza wa does to show people or to, to increase their interest, right? To get them to pay more attention to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to say. Such is the one, that is the one who pushes away the orphan. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma said, meaning that they stop that person from attaining their right. Stop that person from attaining their right. Mujahid rahimahullah said, they don't feed them, meaning that they don't feed them. Al-Dahaq rahimahullah said, that he means that they abuse them, right? verbally abuse them, ridicule them. And Al-Hasan al-Basri rahimahullah said, it's the one who oppresses the orphan. And a similar example to this in the Quran, you will find, is in Surah Al-Kahf. When Allah Azza wa Jal in the story of Musa and Khidr, as they're going through their three different, uh, you know, the three different events that they go through in that story, the third one is when they come to the people of the town, right? They come to the people of the town, they ask for food and for hospitality, the people of the town refuse, and as they're leaving, Khidr salam comes across a wall that is about to fall, right, crumble down. So he rebuilt it, right? Some of the scholars of tafsir, they said that he pushed it up with his hand. Others said, like Ibn Abbas, عنهما, that he knocked it down and rebuilt it from, from nothing. That's when Musa says, why don't you ask them to pay you for this? 
right? They didn't give us food, no hospitality. These are people who don't have good character and you've done them a favor. At the very least, they should pay you something back. And that's when obviously Khidr says, okay, enough. Now we're going to separate. I go my way, you go your way. But before we do, I will tell you what happened, right? why I did what I did. And then he says further on, وَأَمَّا الْجِدَارُ فَكَانَ لِغُلَامَيْنِ يَتِيمَيْنِ فِي الْمَدِينَةِ And as for the wall, it belonged to two orphan boys that lived in the city. وَكَانَ تَحْتَهُ كَنْزٌ لَهُمَا And beneath that wall was a treasure for them. Some of the scholars of Tafsir said it was knowledge. But the majority of the scholars said it was wealth. وَكَانَ أَبُوهُمَا صَالِحًا And their father was a righteous man. فَأَرَادَ رَبُّكَ أَنْ يَبْلُغَ أَشُدَّهُمَا وَيَسْتَخْرِجَ كَنْزَهُمَا رَحْمَةً مِّنْ رَبِّهِ So your, your Lord wished that they should reach the age of adulthood, maturity, so that they would be able to take and benefit from that treasure themselves. Why? Because had the world crumbled and the treasure been discovered, the people of that town who have already been described as inhospitable, lacking good manners, lacking good character, had they found that wealth, they wouldn't have saved it for the orphans. They wouldn't have thought, okay, it belongs to the orphans. This is their right. This is what they need. Instead, they would have taken it for themselves. So Khidr says to Musa, I rebuilt the wall so that their wealth would remain preserved and protected until a time would come that they themselves would be adults, strong enough to hold their own, to take their position and their wealth and keep it. And then they would discover it themselves and they would take it rahmatan min rabbik as a mercy from your Lord. And you can juxtapose that with how the Prophet acted when he came to Medina and the first thing that he did was want to build his masjid. And so when his camel came and it settled in a place as the narration of Urwa ibn al-Zubayr says in Sahih al-Bukhari, he said, this is the place insha'Allah that we're going to choose. The camel settles in a place. He asks the companions, who does this land belong to? Because he wants to build his masjid there. They said that it belongs to two orphan boys, Sahel and Suhail, two orphan boys. And they were under the custodianship of a man from the Ansar by the name of Asad uh, ibn Zurara radiallahu And so the Prophet calls them. And he calls the two boys and he says that I want to buy this land from you to build a masjid. They said, بَلْ نَهِبُهُ لَكَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ They said, rather, O Messenger of Allah, we gift it to you. You don't have to buy it from us. We gift it. It's for the masjid. It's for you. Take it. The Prophet ﷺ refused until he agreed with them a price and he paid them for that land and then he built the masjid. And that's because it is to preserve the rights of the orphans. Right? Their rights are from the greatest of rights. Right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about their rights in the Quran in a number of verses. And the worst of people, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَأْكُلُونَ أَمْوَالَ الْيَتَامَ ظُلْمًا إِنَّمَا يَأْكُلُونَ فِي بُطُونِهِمْ نَارًا Allah says, indeed those who devour the wealth of the orphans unjustly, they only devour within their bellies the fire of hell. And they will, their abode will be the hell fire. Right? Because of how serious the issue is, and that's why the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I am the one who sponsors the orphan will be like these two in paradise to show their rights and their honor and so on and so forth. And obviously, our Prophet himself was an orphan. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is you know a common theme therefore that, that occurs within the Quran, within the Sunnah, it is something which comes a number of times. It is something which, which occurs over and over again. 
And Allah chooses it here to describe the worst of people, those who don't have any iman, those who reject Allah, those who reject Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Allah describes them as being from the people who push away the orphan, right? who don't have any goodness towards the orphan. Ibn Kathir rahimahullahu ta'ala said, it is the one who rebukes or demeans the orphan and they oppress them and they withhold their right and they don't feed them and they don't do any goodness towards them. So what he's done, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, is he's combined between all of those opinions, all of those statements that we mentioned before, Ibn Abbas, Mujahid, Dahak, Al-Hassan, they brought them all together. And all of them are correct, right? All of those are parts or uh, ways in which a person pushes away the orphan. And that's why um, you know, others said that they don't even do anything good towards them, right? They don't have any good towards them. Doesn't do any good towards them, doesn't smile, doesn't speak, doesn't make them feel good, doesn't help, doesn't, doesn't, it's not just about the, the financial, but even the emotional and the psychological, they don't help them in any way. Okay, let's take some questions. By rejecting someone's hadith but accepting the tafsir, are we implying the science of hadith are more rigorous? Yes, the science of hadith is more rigorous because we are speaking about, in that sense, in that sense it is more rigorous. Why? Because we are speaking about the statements of the Prophet And the statements of the Prophet and his actions and, and his approvals and so on form the basis of sharia, they are legislation, right? We take the way we pray, the way that we act, the way that we perform, everything in this religion is taken from the sunnah. So therefore, clearly the hadith and the scholars of hadith will be more rigorous. So when they say, for example, that a narrator is weak, doesn't mean that that person, just because he has bad memory, and that's the reason he's weak, that every single time he narrated a hadith, he was susceptible to bad memory. Or that he's someone who was known to commit mistakes and errors. Doesn't mean that every single time he narrated that he made errors. But the scholars of hadith will err on the side of caution because it is the hadith of the Prophet wasallam. And they will refuse that hadith unless it is supported by another narrator, by another chain of narration, by someone else who said this, I heard something similar. Or this person was known that when he narrated from this scholar, it was when he had good memory. He was young in age and so on. But as he got older and his memory faded and he became weaker, they refused or they didn't accept his hadith. So clearly the scholars of hadith have more stringent you know, uh, conditions when it comes to the chain of narration when it comes to hadith because it is the hadith of the Prophet When we speak about tafsir though, when we're speaking about tafsir, we're speaking about these scholars giving their own tafsir. And that's why when I was speaking about Muhammad ibn Sa'ib, we differentiated between what he narrates from others. When he says that this is the statement of Ibn Abbas that I heard so-and-so, so-and-so narrate from, one of the companions, and that's different because Ibn Abbas, when you narrate from a companion like Ibn Abbas, it has a certain weight attached to the name, the personality, the knowledge that you're speaking about. But a scholar of tafsir will give his own interpretation of the Quran. That's what he's doing. So when someone like Muqatil, who is a scholar of tafsir, says, this is what I consider to be the meaning of the verse, you'll find that the scholars say, okay, that's a valid meaning because we know that other scholars, Al-Hassan, you know, Ibn Abbas, Mujahid, Ata, others, they said something similar. Or if there is a difference of opinion, there is a, a, a contradiction or there is something which, which, which is opposing those opinions, then the scholars will choose and say, that seems to be more likely and this seems to be less. And there are, in the statements of Muqatil, in the tafsir, things which you know, some of the scholars will say, that doesn't make sense or it's rejected or it's not, it, doesn't, it goes against 
what is known from the Sahaba or something. And when that happens, then the scholars of Tafsir will make that very clear. Right? And that's why in books of Tafsir, when you go through books like Ibn, uh, Ibn Kathir, Al-Imam Al-Tabari, and even scholars who are not known, don't have you know, full-on works of Tafsir, but they have commented on many of the verses of the Quran, like Ibn Al-Qayyim and Ibn Taymiyyah and others, this is what they do. Right? And that's why they're called muhaqqiqin. A muhaqqiq is someone who verifies, someone who edits, someone who critiques, right? someone who comes through that and says, no, that's supposing what we know generally from the Quran or the Sunnah, what is the established position of the companions and so on. And they will make then you know, that, that ability. So there is a difference between saying that the Prophet said this and this is the chain of narration and by saying that this is an opinion of a scholar of tafsir. Right? And that's why, number one, I mentioned this issue, but number two, we have to know how to deal with these different sciences and what it means when someone says, in a scholar of hadith says, muqatil. And a scholar of tafsir says muqatil. And not to be confused between those two. It is also because, okay, uh, it is because muqatil, what's the difference? Why is muqatil considered scholar tafsir for Muhammad and his sahib isn't? Because muqatil stood on the, under the likes of mujahid and ata and those giants of tafsir. Whereas Muhammad ibn al-Sa'ib doesn't have that, you know, that, uh, that pedigree. The people that he stood under aren't as well known. And therefore his narrations in and of themselves, himself, as a person, as, a, as an authority of, of tafsir or authority in Islam, isn't someone that's as widely accepted. Whereas Muqatil is, right? So even the scholars who say that he's weak in, in, you know, in, in hadith and so on, like Imam al-Shafi and others, they say that but when it comes to his tafsir, he's an ocean. Uh, the opinion that relates to Abu Sufyan, is this not slightly uneasy to have because Abu Sufyan later became a Muslim and therefore this would remain for eternity? No, that's not the case because that's often the, the case in the Quran when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about one issue and then later on those people became Muslims. Right? And Allah Azza wa doesn't name Abu Sufyan by the way in the Quran. This is an interpretation, one of the opinions of the scholars of tafsir. And you know, Abu Sufyan did other things like in the Battle of Uhud, Battle of Badr, is referring to people like Abu Sufyan and others who would then later on become Muslims. So that's not a problem, it's not like necessarily an issue that they did those things before and then later on they would accept Islam just like in the story of Musa alayhi salam Allah speaks about the sorcerers who come to combat Musa alayhi salam and then he says but then they accepted Islam and they, and they fell into prostration and so on. So the two things you know, aren't necessarily a problem one against the other. Okay, we're going to stop there inshallah and we're going to conclude inshallah next week You sure? Next week, inshallah, the class starts at 8.50 online and Salat al-Maghrib will be whenever Salat al-Maghrib is. Yeah, check the timetable. I don't know when that is. Barakallahu feekum. Muhammad wa ala alihi wa